0: coming to the end of this paragraph that we have been studying uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 18 and our focus will be on the last two verses of the paragraph Romans 8 verses 24 and 25 so beginning again in Romans 8 verse 18 and let me remind you that this is not the word of man which passes away This is the word of God which abides forever. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Well, this morning we saw that Christians live with a deep groaning and eager longing for the day of resurrection. They long for the day when Christ will return when He will raise our bodies from the dead, when He will make us perfect and bring us into paradise, this old earth will be made new and we will dwell upon it in glory forever. This is the hope that Paul is referring to in these last two verses of the paragraph. And Paul says that it is in this hope that we were saved. Dear Christian, is the power of hope at work in your life. Are you like the betrothed bride, waiting for her bridegroom to come and to get her? Are you waiting earnestly? To help us a bit more in these verses, I want to speak to you under these three headings. First, these verses explained... Second, these verses illustrated. And then third, these verses applied. Very simple outline. These verses explained. These verses illustrated. These verses applied. So first, the verses explain The point of verses 24 and 25 is that the Christian life by nature is a life of hope. Salvation is a future, prospective thing. We believe that we are saved, but we do not yet have full possession of our salvation. We have not yet seen our Savior's face. We have not yet been made clean through and through. We do not yet have bodies made perfect. We've not taken a single step on a street of gold We trust in God's Word. We trust those things are coming to us, but they have not come to us yet. And so the Christian life right here, right now, is a forward-looking, earnest, expectation-filled, hope-filled life. It's a life of hope. Remember, hope in the Bible is not a desire for something that may or may not come. It's not like, I hope Duke wins the championship ACC basketball game where it may or may not come true and today you would have been disappointed, right? Because you don't control those things. That's that's not hope in the Bible. Hope in the Bible refers to something that you know is coming, you're sure is coming, you have God's word on the matter, and you're anticipating, you're earnestly waiting for it. There's nothing unsure about it. You're counting on the thing you're hoping for. Mount Hermon, we are certainly counting on God's word being proven true. We believe that God is going to fulfill His every promise to us, and if what we are expecting does not come true, then we are above all people most to be pitied. If what we believe to be true is not, and if what the the promises that we're holding to are not going to be fulfilled, we are the laughing stock of the world. If God doesn't come through, we are utter fools. But we do not doubt that what God has promised will come true. We have His Word, we have His Spirit, and therefore we look to the sky and we wait. We wait actively, not ceasing to fulfill our callings, serve our Lord, love our neighbors, but we are waiting. The Christian life is a life of hope. Paul reminds us that this is what we should expect because a person hopes for what he cannot see. A person doesn't hope for something he can see. You don't wait earnestly for something you already have. When Jesus was walking and talking with his disciples, they were not fasting and mourning and praying and longing for him to come. No, he was there. He was with them. Jesus said, it is after I have left that my followers will long pray fast for me to return. And so that's where we are today. We're in the midst of hoping. We're in the midst of waiting. We're in the midst of praying and fasting for Jesus to return and make things right. At least I hope that's where we are. We can be sure that if God is at work among us in this church... This is exactly the kind of thing that should be appearing in our hearts and lives. This life of hope. This life of longing. Paul says that as we come to grips with all of this, we wait for the day of resurrection with patience. We wait for our Savior with patience. Do you see that in the verse? With patience. The word is hupomone. Hupo means under. Mone means to remain this word literally means to remain under to persevere to endure it's not patience in the sense of sitting in a waiting room there's nothing going on you just sit tap your fingers and wait for the doctor to come or for the nurse to call your name it's not that no rather the idea is that there are things against you you are facing trials you are facing tribulations There are sufferings and there are pains and there are frustrations and there are heartaches and you are under them all. But rather than rebelling against God, disobeying Him, turning from Christ, you stay under these troubles and you persevere through them and you seek to be faithful to God in them and you do all of this in hope, waiting for the day of your redemption. So these verses reinforce what we've been seeing Over the last couple weeks, and especially what we saw this morning, Christian lives with an earnest longing and a long and and an earnest hope for the great day to come. So that's the verses explained. Now the verses illustrated. What does this look look like in the lives of believers? What does hope look like in the life of a Christian? Well, the Bible gives us a whole chapter that reminds us of people in the Old Testament who were longing for the great day to come. The hall of faith in Hebrews 11 could just as easily and appropriately be called the hall of hope. In fact, that chapter begins by saying that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And so it even makes the connection. We could talk about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We could talk about Moses and Rahab and Gideon, even Samson. These people who knew what it was to live with a great hope of what God had promised. But for our purpose tonight, I thought I would draw our attention to one example. David Brainerd. David Brainerd has been on my mind a lot lately. Uh, David Brainerd died at the age of 29 in the house of Jonathan Edwards' Before that, he had served as a missionary to the Native Americans in New New England, uh, particularly ministering in the New Jersey area. David Brainerd's diary is wonderful in that it gives us a rare glimpse into the heart and mind of someone who walked uniquely close to God. If you want to know just how sweet and how wonderful communion with God can be in this life, spend time reading the diary of David Brainerd. I want to read you an entry from his diary. And I hope you'll hear what it sounds like when a Christian is living with hope and longing and desire for God in the day to come. This is, was written in April 25th, 1745. David Brainerd writes, This morning I spent about two hours in secret duties and was enabled more and more ordinary, was enabled more than ordinarily to agonize for immortal souls. Though it was early in the morning, and the sun scarcely shined at all, yet my body was quite wet with sweat. I felt much pressed now, as frequently of late, to plead for the meekness and calmness of the Lamb of God in my soul, and through divine goodness felt much of it this morning. Oh, it is a sweet disposition, heartily to forgive all injuries done to us, to wish our greatest enemies as well as we do our own souls. Blessed Jesus, may I daily be more and more conformed to Thee. At night, I was exceedingly melted with divine love. I had some feeling sense of the blessedness of the upper world. Those words hung upon me with much divine sweetness. Psalm 84, 7, they go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. Oh, the near access that God sometimes gives us in our addresses to Him. This may well well be termed appearing before God. It is so indeed in the true spiritual sense and in the sweetest sense. I think I have not had such power of intercession these many months, both for God's children and for deadened sinners as I have had this evening. I wished and longed for the coming of my dear Lord. I long to join the angelic host in praises, wholly free from imperfection. Oh, the blessed moment hastens. All I want is to be more holy, more like my dear Lord. Oh, for sanctification. My very soul pants for the complete restoration of the blessed image of my Savior that I may be fit for the blessed enjoyments and employments of the heavenly world. He then breaks out into his own poetry. Farewell, vain world, my soul can bid adieu. My Savior's taught me to abandon you. Your charms may gratify a sensual mind, not please a soul wholly for God designed. Forbear to entice, cease then my soul to call. "'Tis fixed through grace, my God shall be my all. While He thus lets me heavenly glories view, your beauties fade, my heart's no room for you.'" He then keeps writing, "'The Lord refreshed my soul with many sweet passages of His Word. Oh, the new Jerusalem, how my soul longed for it! Oh, for the song of Moses and the Lamb!' That blessed song that no man can learn but they who are redeemed from the earth. And those glorious white robes given to the souls under the altar. Breaks out in poetry again. Lord, I'm a stranger here alone. Earth no true comforts can afford. Yet absent from my dearest one, my soul delights to cry, My Lord, Jesus, my Lord, my only love. Possess my soul, nor thence depart. Grant me kind visits, heavenly dove. My God shall then have all my heart. Do you hear the longings in Brainerd's heart? Did you hear that it was a God-centered longing? Brainerd wants to be holy. He, He wants to walk streets of gold. But above all, he longs for God to be his all in all. This is the great longing of the Christian. We want to be in that final state of perfection in which God will be everything to us forever and ever. We long for the day when we can live for His glory, body and soul, for all eternity. And this kind of hope should increase in us as we draw nearer and nearer to death. The Puritan Thomas Adams said, Even the tired horse when he comes near home, picks up the pace. Be good always without weariness, but be best at last, that the nearer thou comest to the end of thy days, the nearer thou mayest be to the end of thy hopes, the salvation of thy soul. In other words, each passing day as we get older, each passing day as we see our death day drawing nearer, our hopes should be growing stronger. Each day we draw closer to our death, we should see ourselves as drawing closer to the day of our resurrection. Is your longing for that day increasing? Can you say that you have more frequent and deeper thoughts and longings for heaven today than you did a year ago, or five years ago, or ten years ago? Have the charms of this world faded in their enticement of you more today than in years past? Does the promises of heaven seem more appealing to you today than in years past? Is your heart being hurried homeward? That's our verses illustrated. Now the verses applied. And here I have three questions for you. First, have you been thinking of salvation wrongly? Have you been thinking of salvation as more of a past thing than a future thing? Could it be that you, like many in our culture, have been thinking of salvation in terms of something you've done in the past? I prayed a prayer. I was baptized. I got my fire insurance, as some people would say. How many there are who see salvation as just this thing to get taken care of and then you put it behind you and you move on to other things. But if you see salvation that way, you've completely misunderstood what it is. Salvation is not mainly about something you've done in the past. It's about God's promise of what He is going to do for you in the future. Salvation is a future reality that becomes yours now through faith in Jesus. Christians are those who live by faith looking forward to the great day ahead of them, resting in the promises of God, trusting in Jesus for that day ahead. Indeed, real Christians are those people who are striving to obtain this prize by working each day to maintain and strengthen their faith. Those people who think of salvation only in terms of something they did in the past, praying a prayer, being baptized. There are so many verses in the Bible that they don't know what to do with. Jesus speaks of taking heaven by storm. They have no idea what he's talking about. Paul talks about running a race to obtain a prize and they don't get it. They say, I thought I already had the prize, right? Paul speaks of working out your salvation and fear and trembling. And these people scratch their heads and they say, I thought I was already saved. Mount Hermon, this is the reality. It is those children who persevere in faith to the end that are truly God's. It is those people who fight the fight to maintain their faith and to take their last and final breath holding on to Christ. Those are the ones that belong to Him. Yes, you may have professed faith in the past, but you could prove your profession of faith a lie tomorrow. You could always fall away tomorrow, show that your faith was a fraud, that it was a self-deception, that it was a man-made faith rather than a God-given faith. The race we are in is a race to remain hoping in Christ till the end. It is a race against despair, a race against disbelief. And you will not run this race well unless you have your eyes firmly set on the prize. If you are not looking forward to what God has promised you, but you're looking back at something you've done in the past, you're going to trip and stumble all over yourself in this race. You're going to turn from God to worldliness and your flesh, you're you're going to fall down and fall away. The narrow road that leads to heaven is littered on both its sides with the bodies of those who fell along the way. They turned aside here. They turned aside there. They did not live by hope. They were not looking towards resurrection day. They weren't looking towards the day when God would be there all in all. Their hearts weren't set on the promises of God. Their hearts were set on money or sensual pleasures or career or golf or... And those things became more important to them than the promises of God. This is the journey that you and I are on. A journey to remain believing on Christ till our dying day. And dear friends, our last trial may very well be the most difficult. And that is why it is so important that we work every day to strengthen our faith, to cultivate stronger and stronger faith, praying for God's blessing, praying for God's grace, so that when we fight that final trial of dying, we will have faith by grace to say, God is mine and I am His, to live as Christ and to die as gain. If you're not making use of the means of grace today, if you're not running that race with your eyes fixed on the prize today, you have no reason to think you're going to have a strong faith when that time of dying comes. This is our pilgrim's progress. And as we continue to run this race and fight this fight for more faith, we trust that it is God working in us He will work through our choices. He will bless our efforts by granting us more and more faith. We will persevere to the end as He preserves us to the end. I ask you, are your eyes set on the prize? My two favorite books in the Chronicles of Narnia are Voyage of the Dawn Treader and The Final Battle. In The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the one I want to mention now we see the longing that Repacheep has for Aslan's country Repacheep is a talking mouse he is small but he is valiant and he is courageous Repacheep is chivalrous Repacheep is brave and when Repacheep was young a song was sung over him about Aslan's country Aslan, of course, represents Christ, Aslan's country. It's a picture of heaven. The song said, Where sky and water meet, where the waves grow sweet, doubt not, Reepicheep, to find all you seek. There is the utter east. And so in the story, we see that Reepicheep will not let anything stand in his way of reaching Aslan's country. That is his heart's desire, and he will let nothing keep him from there. He longs to be with Aslan and to live in that glorious world. C.S. Lewis, who wrote these books, had this deep longing for heaven himself. Lewis had this deep desire for the world to come. He said this Lewis said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And this is how it is with us. We are new creation souls living in this old creation world and we are longing for the new creation world our souls were meant to be on. Christians should have an insatiable desire for more of God, a desire that will never be truly and fully met until Jesus comes back Comes back, our bodies are raised, and this earth is made new. Um, the ship, Dawn Treader, makes it to a place where Repacheep knows that Aslan's country is close. But the others want to turn back. They're discussing going back home. But for Repacheep, Aslan's country is home. He says, My own plans are made while I can. I'm going to sail east in the dawn-treader. When she fails me, I will paddle east in my coracle. When she sinks, I will swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have still not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world, I will sink with my nose to the sunrise. Later, the water turned sweet, as in the, the prophecy spoken over him at his birth. And Repacheep can hardly contain himself as he thinks about Aslan's country being near. The ship comes to a place where the people are afraid that the ship will be swept off the edge of the world. They're worried about what might be below if they're taken over the edge of the world. But we're told that Repacheep, eyes shining and paws clapping, say whatever it is, it will be worth dying just to catch a glimpse of it. This was his perspective. The glories of Aslan's country are so great it would be worth dying just to catch a glimpse. Finally, the water becomes so shallow that the ship can go no further east. But Reepicheep, quivering with excitement, gets off the ship and begins to trudge his way through the water, making his way east. His eyes are on the prize. He will let nothing turn him away. Mount Hermon, this is the proper view of things. Salvation is not about something you've done in the past. It's about God's promise to you of a world to come that is yours in Jesus Christ. It's His promise of you being forever with Him in His glorious world, and you are trusting that though you don't deserve it, though you don't deserve it, through Jesus, this blessing is coming to you. And so, like Reputi, we're to keep our eyes on the prize. We're to maintain and strengthen our faith. We're to be constantly heading in that direction, and this is how we will safely come to our final breath. Second question for application is this: Do you see the utter folly of those who trade the eternal for the things that are passing? Do you see the utter folly? of those that trade the eternal for the things that are passing. There are so many who give up the great prize because of worldliness. The resurrection at the last day for them will be a resurrection unto judgment and condemnation. For those who who fall into worldliness, their resurrection day will be a day in which they are resurrected in order to go body and soul into hell instead of heaven. So many start so well. So many start out seeming to really trust in Jesus. But the trials and the tribulations come and they flee to the desires of their flesh for comfort. Rather than obeying God in the midst of the pain and the suffering, they flee to lust or to greed or to the bottle in order to find comfort. They turn to other things instead of God and their heart hardens and their faith begins to shrivel. The world has so much that can amuse us to death. There are so many earthly cares that can distract us from the prize that we're running for. Jesus said about the seed that fell among thorns, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Do you remember Vanity Fair in Pilgrim's Progress? You're a Christian and faithful, they're on their way to the celestial city, but first they must pass through Vanity Fair. You cannot get to heaven without passing through Vanity Fair. And there is so much to see at this fair. There is so much to do. There are so many things that you can buy. We're told that many a traveler has gotten so caught up in the fair that they forgot about their journey. Then They they got delighted in, in the shows and the games and the trinkets and they ended up wasting their lives away in Vanity Fair, never making it to the place of safety, to the celestial city. They fall away from the narrow path, and when the day of judgment comes, they're not safe. In the story, the people of Vanity Fair find Christian and faithful to be very, very strange. These two people are not dressed like the rest of them. They don't talk like them. They keep talking about this place called Canaan. Their hearts and their minds are set on heaven and the world to come. And they're so caught up in thinking about the celestial city, it's like they don't even notice the games and the trinkets and the shows and everything that is around them. And this creates such a hubbub in the city that the two men are actually arrested and put on trial. And John Bunyan writes this, So the men were brought to examination. And they sat before them and asked them where they had come from, where they were going, and what they were doing in such unusual clothes. Christian and faithful answered that they were pilgrims and strangers in this world and that they were going to their own country, which was the heavenly Jerusalem. Mount Hermon, don't lose the eternal for the things that are passing. Don't let your heart be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin so that you fall away from the living God. Don't let your faith shrivel up and die. Beware the allure of worldliness. This is why we need preaching. We need to regularly hear the promises and the warnings of Scripture pressed upon our hearts and consciences. When we read the Bible on our own, we can see these things, but there are times when our hearts want to avoid these passages. (laughs) In preaching, we are confronted with what we need to hear. In preaching, we are reminded about this other world ahead and the danger of getting caught up in the here and now of Vanity Fair. Worldly hearts turn from preaching, they don't want their worldliness to be confronted. Hearts that get attached to this life don't want to be reminded about the race that they're supposed to be running. But for those who are faithful, not only to, to come to preaching, but to be confronted by it, this is a wondrous gift. Because in preaching, we're reminded. We're, we're, it's It's like, I've told you before, we were kids up in Northampton County and there would always be the runners that came by each year and they were running this long run and we would always set up the the table outside in the yard and we'd have water and crackers and things for them so they could get a little nourishment and then keep on their way. That's what preaching is. Preaching is reminding you, you're on a race, you're on a race, here's a little encouragement, here's a little nourishment, watch out for that boulder there, let me warn you about something that's coming up around the bend, keep running, keep running. Worldly hearts don't want to hear that. Worldly hearts want to hear. All is well. All is well. Enjoy your life right here, right now. That's what it's about. Our hearts are weaned off this world and set more upon heaven the more we make use of the gift of preaching. It's also why we need each other. As we said this morning, let us not fail to stir up one another to greater faith by talking about heaven and the day of resurrection, the return of Jesus, the world to come. So here's my final question for you, and it's a brief one. Have you been waiting patiently? Have you been waiting patiently? As troubles and trials and obstacles and suffering come into your life, do you find yourself grumbling against God Do you find yourself whining and complaining? Do you find yourself wanting to give up this life of faith? Well, if so, let me urge you to repent. See how good your God is being to you and how good He's going to be in the future. God loves you and every trial is for your good. He will not overwhelm you. His grace will be sufficient. If you will not let your heart grow hard, but lean on Christ. Don't grumble in your trials. Don't complain in your trials. Embrace your trials. Persevere through them. Endure them. Make the most of them. Learn the lessons of them. You are not running a sprint. You are running a marathon. So keep your eyes on the prize. Stay patient and push through. Let your heart trust love, and hope more in Christ than ever before. Let's pray.